upgrade your three for me as your kids say, hey, wouldn't it be great to not only have chips and salsa, but chips and queso or guacamole. You can get premium sides for just a couple bucks. You can get cheese and bacon added on to your potato. Recently did some tech upgrades and you sit with the store clerks and they think you have to have the pro, the regular iPhone. Well, it's good, but that's for ordinary people. You really need the pro because there are aspects of it that are just so much more. And I'm an Android guy, so it's like the plus galaxy isn't quite enough. You really need the ultra because those extra hundred megapixels are just going to make that much better of a difference. When you get your new laptop, there's that opportunity for more RAM, a more powerful processor, regardless of the fact of whether or not you may actually ever need them. But just the fact that you have them somehow makes you feel more ready for the world. Our emails are constantly being inundated with opportunities to go to leadership conferences, listen to leadership podcasts, to upgrade our skills and our leadership abilities. Everywhere we turn, somebody's offering us the opportunity to upgrade. And as I was approaching our text this week, that imagery spoke so profoundly to me. Because I think one of the upgrades I know I could most use in my life, and perhaps many of you could as well, might be a prayer upgrade. That if we were to look at the Apostle Paul and the way that he prays for the church in Ephesus, not only here, but also in chapter 3, the way he prays again and again throughout his letters, it reveals something profound to me, that Paul seems to have an entirely different category of priorities than what tends to dominate my prayers. It's been one of those seasons where we recognize we're supposed to pray without ceasing. We're supposed to cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. So certainly everything is fair game for our prayer lives. But it seems so often our lives are dominated by the crisis that happens not only in our lives, but in the lives of the people around us who are struggling. And so so much of our prayers are devoted to them. It's been a season of profound searching for our congregations as they've been coming together, seeking after God's will. And yet, when we get to the book of Ephesians, Paul prays something profound, but yet something profoundly simple for the church. In light of everything he said the past two weeks, Josh and Josh have unpacked for us that we have been chosen, that we have been predestined, that we have been grace lavished upon us, we've been forgiven, we've been redeemed, we've been sealed with the Spirit. In light of all these things, what is it that Paul decides to pray for the church? I pray that your eyes would be opened that you might know God more. What a simple but profound prayer. What if we began to pray that not only for ourselves, but for one another, that the eyes of our hearts might be opened, that we might know God more and more. What a profoundly simple upgrade and one that might not cost us a whole lot except a little bit of reprioritization of our time and our focus. Because Paul would remind us there is no greater thing than to know the God of the universe and what he has done for us and continues to do in and through his people. So as we approach our text this morning, 
We're going to use this lens of praying for open eyes to know him more fully. And he begins in verse 15. For this reason, he says, for this reason, because of everything I've already told you, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. And here we want to make sure we don't miss something profound. Because when we think about praying to know God, when we think about having the eyes of your heart opened, so often what do we think? We think that's something we pray for our friends and our family who don't know Jesus. They're the ones who need to have their eyes and their minds and their hearts and their lives opened. But yet, who is it that Paul prays this for? It's the church in Ephesus. Those who have been sealed with the Spirit. Those who have been redeemed. Those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world. Yes, it's us. We are the ones he prays for that we would know more fully through the work of the Spirit who God is and all that he has done for us. And he says, it's to those who've heard the faith, those who love the saints, those who are already walking and fulfilling the two greatest commandments, love God with all you have and love your neighbors yourself. Even if you're putting it into practice, guess what? You can know God more. There is more of him to be had. So open up your eyes to see it. He continues on into verses 16 and 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. As Paul does, he can't help but allow the bubbling of what God has done to result in thanks and praise for God. And here again, the language has been building throughout this chapter. And we see this profound aspect that what happens when God moves in a new place. When we hear about the work of the spirit of new people and new tribes coming to know Jesus. Do we fly to them and thank them for coming to Christ? No, we praise and thank God for his work among those people. And so Paul has heard of the great things that have happened since the four years have passed since he has been in Ephesus. And he prays and he thanks God because God is the one who has lavished his grace. He is the one who has affected his calling. He is the one who has done all of these things. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and in revelation in knowledge of him. And again, those high titles of God, the exclusivity of the Father of glory. We become so familiar with them. But to the first century Roman, we are reminded that they live with gods full of pantheons. But here is the exclusivity. There is one God of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is one Father of glory, literally one who has all of the glory. This is the one to whom I thank God for. And then we come to his prayer. May he give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowledge of him. We see that profound truth that this is something we cannot attain on our own. It is something the Spirit must reveal to us. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. He says, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even imagine it. 
These things, he continues on, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. We need true God, a very God, to reveal to us more of God, more of his glorious grace. So he says, may the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And so we get two profound words to unpack. Revelation, the knowledge that is revealed to us, and wisdom, the application of that revelation and knowledge. And so maybe to put that in more contemporary terms for us, we could think about it this way. Many of us, if we are in search of human revelation, where do we turn? The mighty Google. And if you are anything like me, and you have home repairs that need to be made, and you are not especially handy, where do you turn? YouTube. Right? Because whatever you need to do, somebody has made a video about it, just about. And so there is great revelation. There are great revealings of truths on YouTube to help us make repairs. However, I've learned one thing. Whenever I attempt to do something, it never looks like it does on YouTube. It never works like it does on YouTube. Now, perhaps this is because my dad grew up during the Great Depression, and everything in our house was done according to the cheapest way possible, regardless of whether or not that was the best long-term solution, regardless if that was the way anyone else in the world would do it. But so often when we begin into a project, there's that moment. Uh, this helped me get so far, but that revelation, it's not sufficient, right? And that's where wisdom comes in, because in those moments, what do I do? I call up some of those people who've lived and done things, right? I go over to Ace Hardware instead of going to Home Depot. Why? Because that's where the old guys are who can fix anything are at, right? And if you work at Home Depot, we love you too, right? But, like, but just like in general, right, there's that wisdom that comes from people who have actually walked that line. And so here we have this profound image that Paul gives us. The spirit, not only of revelation, the one who can reveal God to us, but the one who comes and lives inside of us to help us walk it out in practical application. Is it no wonder that Paul prays for the Spirit to do this? Because if we only have the revelation, we do not have the wisdom. If we only have the wisdom, it is only of men. We need what God alone can give us. Knowledge of him. Again, of all the things that Paul could have prayed for, and will pray for. He prays for this. The great gift only God can reveal to us of more of God. And when I stop and I think about that, we have to be clear that he's not promising us something profoundly new. If we have trusted in Christ, all of these things are already true. But there is a way in which we need to grasp them more fully. That the longer we follow after Christ, the deeper these truths resonate in our lives. But sometimes we get tunnel vision, don't we? Sometimes it's so easy to get lost. I was reading this past week about this story about, let me make sure I don't butcher the guy's name, William Randolph Hearst, right? Famous newspaper publisher. Incredibly wealthy. And so he decided at one point in his life he was going to start collecting art. And so he amassed warehouse after warehouse of art. And as he was reading one day, there was this rare work of art. And he decided he had to have it. 
So he called his agent, and his agent told him it was impossible. Mr. Hurst said, I don't care how much it costs. I don't care how long it takes you. Go find it, and I will buy it. And so his agent, months go by, and finally his agent arrives and tells him, I've found it. And Mr. Hurst is, great, I can't wait. Where is it and how much does it cost? And he says, you're never going to believe it. You don't have to pay anything for it. You actually already own it. And it's in this warehouse in New York City. Right? We recognize the profound truth that there is so much that is ours in Christ. It blows our minds to be able to begin to comprehend it. As this passage begins to crescendo into the power and the authority of Christ and all that is ours because we are found in him. Paul recognizes there is more. There is always more to be known of who God is revealed through what he has done and what he has called us to. And he uses this beautiful image as we move into verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. You will never be able to truly grasp it unless the Spirit opens up your eyes and opens up your heart. And one of the best word pictures of that, I think, comes in 2 Kings chapter 6. The great prophet Elisha finds himself one morning surrounded along with his servant by the army of horses and chariots of Syria. And understandably, his servant is quaking in his boots. And he is afraid. And Elijah turns to him and says, There's no need to be afraid. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. Yeah, theoretically. That sounds great, right? And then he prays, God, may his eyes be opened. And Gehazi's eyes are opened, and he sees no longer the physical army that is surrounding them, but the army of flaming angels that surround the human army. And no longer is there any contest. That is who our God is. That is what we ask for him to do when we ask him to open the eyes of our hearts that we might know him more fully. Reveal to us a greater glimpse of all that you have in store for those who love you. And so now we get to Paul's prayer and he's going to lay out three things. That if we begin to know these three things, we will know God more fully. So we're praying for open hearts to know him more fully. And the first thing we have to know is the hope secured. We have to know the hope which Christ has secured for us. And we get to that second phrase in verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And we get those two profound words, hope and calling, which appear again and again in Ephesians and throughout the writings of Paul. And we have that problem with the word hope when it comes to the Bible, because most of us, when we hear hope, we think wish. Right? All the kids are like, I hope he's not going to preach really long today. I hope that there's going to be dessert tonight. Right? There is that hope. We wish, we desire something. But in biblical thought, it's completely different. Hope has been secured because of what Christ has already done. 
We see this language used in chapter 2 where Paul will say this, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope. And without God in the world, to be alienated from God is to have no hope. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ has secured our hope. It is already firm in what it has accomplished. In fact, in Colossians 1.5, Paul can say about this hope that it is laid up for us in heaven. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. You don't have to worry about someone taking your hope away. Why? Because it is secure in the bank of heaven. No one can get that. It is firmly secured for us. And it is given to us on the basis of our calling, this effective grand plan of God that he already articulated for us in Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Right? Like that we do, we can't even comprehend the fullness of what that means, that calling that extends back before the foundations of the world. But it is that secure in Christ. And it has no basis upon what we've done, right? Because if it happened before the world was created, eh, it wasn't around to do anything, right? Like it's not based upon anything I do or anything I am, but the lavish grace of God. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have implications. Paul will go on to say in Ephesians 4.1, Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Because you have been called, walk in it. The same image Josh Anderson gave us last week. Live now as a child of God. Because you are. So live like it. Because you've been sealed with the Spirit, live like one who's been sealed by the Spirit. Live as a child of God. Because you have been called, because your hope is secure, live differently now. Because if something is yours, don't live like it's not. Don't live like someone can take it from you because they can't. And the implications of that are so profound. Because if I didn't earn it, if it is not dependent upon me, that's a humbling blow on the one hand, right? There's that pride of our hearts that really struggles with that whole idea of grace, right? Maybe it's just me, but many, we struggle with that. But there's a flip side to that that is absolutely beautiful. If I didn't earn it, it means I can't blow it either. And just let that sink in. If I didn't earn it, I can't blow it. God has promised his calling before the foundation of the word laid up in heaven. He will bring it to pass. So any failure, any setback I face is only temporary. Now, when you're in the midst of it, when you keep getting knocked down, when you're struggling and you can feel your flesh crawl because of the temptations you're facing, it doesn't feel that way. 
But that's why we need the Spirit to reveal to us those deeper and more profound truths. That is why we don't give up. That is why we continue to pray for God's grace in the lives of those who seem to turn away. Why? Because if God's grace is at work, he will bring them back, just as he did with the prodigal son. That we recognize the hearts of parents and grandparents whose children seem to be living in a prodigal phase of life. That rather than that driving us to apathy or to despair, it should drive us to our knees, to the revealer of truth and wisdom. Asking him to move in those profound ways. It means as well, in those moments of suffering and pain, that we can trust God not to waste it. It means that God has a grand plan. And even if we can't see it, he can take the darkest of our experiences and transform them and use them for his glory. That is the promise of the cross. If God can take the death of the only sinless one and use it to defeat the forces of darkness, can he not perhaps use the pain the hurt in your life to likewise do something beautiful if we will but trust him. Our eyes would be open that we would know the hope secured. Next, that we would know the heart revealed. The heart of God revealed to us in the fact that he makes us his inheritance. That last part of verse 18. We need to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Right? We're familiar with the idea of inheritance. When somebody dies, it means their kids or their grandkids get their stuff. It's what makes the story of the prodigal son such an affront. That he comes to his dad, well, he's still alive. I want my inheritance now. Dad, wish you were dead. Just want your money. Just, just want it now. But did we catch what Paul is here saying? Not talking about the inheritance that we get. Now, we do get an inheritance in Christ, and it is awesome and amazing. But here's the mind-boggling truth, that God has chosen us as his inheritance. That seems a little weird, doesn't it? That, that doesn't quite make sense. And, and then some of us, like he talks about that inheritance in the saints. And, and so again, sometimes if you grew up with some of that baggage, you might think, hey, saints, aren't those people who like work three miracles? You know, like, isn't, isn't that the understanding of a saint? Well, saint literally means holy one. Holy as in set apart. As in someone who has experienced all those great things we unpacked in chapter one. Redeemed, forgiven, chosen. Da, da, da. That's what it means to be holy. That's what it means to be set apart. And we recognize that this has never been God's choosing on the basis of who we are. We take this language all the way back to Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Israel was promised to be a treasured possession, not because they were great. In fact, Moses says, you were not chosen because you were numerous or more holy than all the other people of the world. In fact, you were more stiff-necked than any other nation on the face of the earth. Just keep, keep the praise going, right? That, that, 
That's why you were chosen. And so in Exodus 19, 3 and 4, we read this. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Israel and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Why are you my treasured possession? Because I chose to save you. Not about you, Israel. Not about us. We are his glorious inheritance. And again, we think about the raw end of the deal that God is getting in that. Because I think in the inheritance, what he gives me is way better than him getting me. And so sometimes we need to remind ourselves the reason that is true is because of the union we have with Christ. And when we get to Ephesians chapter 5, we get this beautiful picture of the church as the bride of Christ. And I think there's an image there for those of us who struggle with this idea of being God's inheritance. That what we really are struggling with is that we haven't seen the heart of God revealed for his people. Because when we see his heart revealed, we can begin to glimpse that truth. One of the great things you get to do as a pastor is you get to officiate weddings. And so there's that really crazy moment when I've done weddings in this church. So everybody else is sitting out here. The bride and all the groomsmen, everybody else is over there, and everybody's doing a zillion other things, and you are just there with the groom, standing right outside that door, making sure he's not freaking out too badly, right? And there's that awkward moment where you guys walk in first, and everybody's looking at you, and then you tell them, don't worry, in 30 seconds, nobody's going to look at you again for the entire ceremony, because <laughs> it's not about you, it's all about the bride, but you get to see something profound when the music changes, when the doors open. You get to see his face when he sees his beloved come through that door. That look is what God has for us. He is inexplicably for you because you are his beloved. If we could know how his heart is revealed in his giving us and making us his inheritance, it would change us forever. And he's got one more truth for us. Not only to know the hope secured, to know the heart of God revealed, but to know the authority that is authored. And here he switches to the language of power in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Yeah, it's great that God calls. It's great that God promised to make us in his inheritance. But now, Paul says, guess what? He's actually got the power to back it up. His authority is what you can bank on. And so he stacks Four great words for power into this verse. Even that word the ESV translates as great is a word that means power. But in English, you don't say power, power, because that sounds weird, right? Unless you were, you know, grew up in the ages of go, go, Power Rangers, right? But this is like the full-on Avengers team. Like every word he can think of, he's throwing it into a bucket here. This is the culmination of all power. And don't miss, it's what? It's toward us. Literally, it's for our working. And notice too, Paul switches tenses. Everything up until this point has been second person. It's you. Now it's towards us. All of us. For everybody. Regardless of whether you're at the top of the totem pole or at the bottom. 
His power is for you, His beloved, for His church. And out of all the glorious examples of God's power from light leaping into existence, he chooses the examples given us in verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Gives us two examples of God's great power. Raising Christ from the dead. Dead, alive. Kind of enough said, right? But we're reminded of what? Not only did no power have the ability to hold Jesus back, what does Jesus tell us? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to pick it back up again. That's power. That's authority. And then it gives us the next image of being raised and exalted to the right hand of God And here we have this quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The picture here is if we had a big old lazy boy right up front, you know, it's like, just sit right back and put your feet up, right? Until the outworking of your authority comes to pass. The right hand throughout scripture, the place of honor and glory and victory. And we see something else profound throughout the New Testament. Angels stand. They kneel in the presence of God. But Jesus sits on the throne. True God of very God. And he is so exalted. It continues on. Verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And the whole Roman society is based upon authority. And that authority was pictured as going on forever. I was reading this past week about a home in Ephesus they unearthed. And it had this graffito written on it. Rome, the ruler of all, may your power never die. And it's into that that Paul writes, no, 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 no. That's Jesus. He is the one who has power over all for all times. And then he outlays powers and dominions, not only the earthly structures of this world, but over every force of darkness that has rebelled against God. It has no hold. We see that language used in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is profound evil in this world that just as if our eyes were open to the work of God, if our eyes were open to the work of the evil one, we would be terrified in what we would see. But Christ stands above all. There is evil power in this world, but it pales in comparison to the authority that Christ has. At the end of time, who is it that binds Satan and cast him into the pit. That's not the work of Jesus. That's the work of an archangel. Because that's the level of authority and power that exists on that plane. And Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are in a completely different level. And he goes on, far above all rule, authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. And when we think about names, we recognize in biblical thought, name has power. That's why the Jews did not utter the name of Yahweh. 
Because to invoke the name is to invoke power. And again, what do we read in Acts about the story of the founding of the church in Ephesus? They burned massive amounts of magical scrolls. This was an area steeped in name, magic, and sorcery. And Paul wants to remind them, you chose rightly. Because all of that is worthless compared to what is yours in Christ. And it is not only for this age, but it is also for the age to come. You don't have to worry about now, but you don't have to worry about the future either. There will be no future power that can arise ever that will parallel the name of Jesus. I was listening to somebody talking this past week about sports and the the idea of halls of fame. And how if you could just get in a time machine and go back with what you know now in sports, science, and training, like you could just dominate the past, right? Because sports and everything keeps advancing. To give you a picture of this, I've shared before, our family are big American Ninja Warrior fans, and my oldest competed on a national level. And to give you an idea of how far the sport of Ninja Warrior has come, not just because of a TV show, but in terms of pure athletics— There are 10-year-olds in his gym that can run up a warped wall. Those 10-year-olds could have beat every single competitor on the first season of American Ninja Warrior. Bring on the million bucks! College is paid for, right? But that is how far and how quickly things advance. And sometimes I think we forget how easily that spirit of change influences us from the world. And we need to step back and be reminded it doesn't matter what change comes. It doesn't matter what happens in this world. Nothing, no authority, no power ever can unseat the authority of Jesus. And because of that, verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. And again, we get another beautiful psalm illustration, allusion here from Psalm 8-6. Before, it's the footstool. Wait at my right hand. Now it's everything is under your feet. Christ not only has authority, he not only has power, he has actually used it. He is using and bringing his dominion and his power in the world. There's a beautiful illustration of that. If we had time, we could read Hebrews chapter 2. But the latter part of verse 8 just puts it as a summary this way. He left nothing outside of his control. That's dominion. (laughs) Nothing is left outside of his control. And he has put everything under his feet. Well, if everything's under his feet, where is he? He's the head over all things. And then what do we read? He's been made the head over all things. For whom? For the church. The exalted Christ is given to who? Us. What an incredible gift. We catch a glimpse of that in John chapter 1, where John sees this amazing vision of the resurrected, glorious Christ standing among the lampstands of the churches. Christ has been exalted, and he has been given to us. And because of this, all things are under his feet. And then closing in the beautiful language of verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
We are his body. And as we unpack that throughout Ephesians, we see this authority accomplishing some profound things, uniting Jew and Gentile together to form a new body and church. Ephesians 4, giving gifts to his church that they would be built up into the fullness and the measure and the stature of Christ. That this is a power and authority worked out even in the book of Ephesians as we see it. That the one who fills all in all, he is the one who is ours. So if we begin to glimpse this, it has some profound implications for us. The first one, when we talk about the implications of his authority, this one who has authored all authority, what does he tell us to do? Those famous words in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus gathers and he came to his disciples and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Insert. Ephesians 19 to 20, right? Like, like just put that in there. Like, if, if you, you know, like, just have that all in your mind as he says this. Go therefore, because this is all mine and I have been given to you. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. It will not be easy, but you will succeed because the gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. That that is his promise. That is the authority of the one who lays down his life and picks it up again. The authority of the one who stands at the right hand of the Father. And he has tasked us with the mission of taking his gospel to the ends of the earth. But take heart, he is with us. Even to the end of the age. Until the day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, he is with us us so don't give up on his mission it also has profound implications for the area of trust because if we only read about the power that christ has it could be terrifying to think about there is one who has this type of power but what does he do with that power he is inexplicably for his people We can trust him because he's revealed his heart to us. He is the one who did not need to choose to redeem us. For we did not deserve it. But yet his heart is revealed as one who is for his people. Don't lose his heartbeat in the midst of his power. And Zechariah tells us he he loves, he delights to show mercy. That that is the incredible God that we serve. Not only does he have the power we can trust him for to cross the finish line, but the power for now in some of those promises. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Yeah, we've heard that message before, right? Heard that promise before, but when we read about the authority revealed in Ephesians 1, maybe just hold on a little bit longer. 
the next time that temptation comes, we lift high the shield of faith, declaring that the authority and the power and the dominion of Jesus, the exalted risen one, are now with us. Those promises of Romans 8.28, that God promises to work all things together for good for those who love him. Good, not defined as the American dream, but good defined as the conforming of us into the image of Christ and the exaltation of his glory. Do we really believe that? If we know him more, that is what enables us in those moments to do the hard things. Josh talked a little bit earlier about the the 150th celebration that we have. And one of the things Advent has compiled over the years is a book that has the pictures of all the senior pastors in it for over 163 years. Mine got taken two days ago in a t-shirt and slapped in the end of the book. So, you know, you know, black and white, top hat, tie, both, you know, like, and then there's Matt in an ACS t-shirt. And so, you know, like somebody, you know, like flipped through the book and says, like, how do you feel about that? I was like, we're not going to talk about that right now, <laughs> right? Because there's that reality that comes in those moments when we come to grips with all the voices of failure, of all the voices of challenge, of all the voices of suffering and pain and dark. And we have to face in those moments, how do we respond? Do we trust that God is at work through all things? That he can take even the ending of a church with 163 years of history to do something glorious. Well, it's a whole lot easier when you can see it. But the faith to walk in those moments when we can't see it is so profoundly challenging. So we hear the call of mission. We hear the call to trust God. But let us not miss where we began, the call to pray. That this is ultimately a call to prayer. If we only hear the instruction, we've missed the point. Right? It can become so easy to get so wrapped up on a hike that you're trying to stay on the trail, that you're trying to count your miles, that you're trying to not fall off the path, that you missed the view. Right? We don't want to be people who would do that. So we hear the admonition out of the instruction contained to pray this for one another, to pray that our hearts, eyes would be opened. So let's just take a minute now and pray that together as we close. Great God in heaven, the one who sees from the end to the beginning, the name above all names, we would pray today as your people that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might know the hope you have secured for us. That, Lord, in those moments when there is doubt, in those moments where there is trial, in those moments where there is question, may we cling inexplicably to the fact that we don't have to cling because you've got us. And you will never let go. God, we would ask that your heart would be revealed deeper and deeper to every person here. That God, you are for us 
even though we did not deserve it. While we were still sinners, while we wanted nothing to do with you, you sent Christ for us. And because of our union with Christ, you now see us as a beautiful bride. Us, God, not only as individuals, but us, God, as a church. We are your beautiful bride. God, we would pray that we would know you as the author of all authority. God, in the midst of our temptation, God, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our pain, we would ask that you would reveal yourself as the one who is always working, the one whom no one can thwart, that you are building your masterpiece, and that, Lord, we may not be able to see it until the other side of glory. But, Lord, may we have eyes to see you in the midst of it. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we would ask that you would pour forth your spirit of wisdom and revelation upon us, that we might grow of the fullness of the one who fills all in all. And we ask this in the name above all names, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'm going to invite those who are going to help to serve the Lord's Supper to come forward.